let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're grateful. It's hot. But thank you for Idaho days that cool off, and we're grateful for four weeks of no rain. And we're uh, thankful for the time together in your word. For what your son taught, and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're in Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I want to mention again, when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, there'll be a lot of good, a lot of depth, a lot of uh, mysteries you could pursue uh, that are worthwhile. Um, but you must begin with what is Jesus doing, or you're going to do the wrong thing. Believe me, scripture twisting is possible, especially with the teachings of Christ. Um, and these, like the other passages, because it's a Sermon on the Mount, kind of like the Ten Commandments of the New Testament, people have quotables. This first line, judge not that you be not judged. I mean, everyone in the world has that memorized. Mostly non-believers. Um, but if you remember where you are in this teaching of Christ, Christ is dealing with the Jewish nation. He is the Messiah. He is preparing them for what their state of need is, morally, religiously, as it would address, be addressed by the Messiah. He was, it was preparation for the gospel. The intensification of the law, not with more law, but with more heart, more obligatory um, state of being, not a state of doing. And we got to the third week, and we were talking about pietisms, uh, almsgiving, fasting, prayer. Um, again, it was a shift away from what you could accomplish. It told you to go do it in secret, for heaven's sake. Whoa, what's the point of that? Now, in chapter 7, he's doing a wind-up, landing this sermon. And there's a few more things to be removed from your arsenal. You know, you, have, you go out into the world and you want to be ready. You take an apologetics course. You take a logic course. You take an evangelism course. You want to be ready for what's coming at you. But the Christian life, as we've learned so far... Beatitudes is the fortune and happiness. Your light's in the world, but it's not by that kind of law, it's by this kind. It's not by that kind of piety, it's by this kind. And he gets to the end and says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, it wasn't written for the non-Christians so that they could quote it back at you when you said you shouldn't do a John the Baptist on them or something. But it is for you because... All of the Sermon on the Mount, all of the Sermon on the Mount is the limitation, the checkpoint, the, the dipstick you've got to run into you. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. It's, it's, it's one of the mean, set of meanest things that Christ ever, you know, he was taking away your right to pray in public. You can't even fast, 
flagrantly. You have to be truly caring for someone, not just not murdering them. It used to be that's all you had to manage was don't murder them. And you probably thought you were righteous for holding yourself back with your roommate or your spouse or your children. But he wanted you to never even think untoward toward them. You're just completely not and I've talked to some Christians recently where they said they struggled with basic things like love. He said, what? That's what Christianity is. What do you mean you struggled with love? You know what it is. If you know you're not doing it, what's the holdup? We have got this huge task on us, and then he tells you, you can't even be... you know, aggressively righteous in your culture. Now, if those of you who know me know I am not a friend of the Christian culture wars. Not our job. Not our monks, not our monastery. We don't have to fix the world. Jesus Christ didn't. And though he could, didn't fix the world. He has the fix for you, the individual. And he's got these standards that you're going to be spending so much time bringing yourself up to the standards the Lord your God has asked of you because you would never, ever think of saying something against somebody else's unrighteousness that you wouldn't be willing to have the same level of judgment measured out against you. And not only that, the next passage, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. He jumps to what is actually the problem. He says, remember, you're going to get the measure you give. It's an eye for eye. To blend two disconnected passages. It's an eye for eye, equal. The way you think of their morality is the way we're going to think of yours. But then he says, you know, probably you've got it wrong about yours. Not only is you have to expect what you the standard you you hold to people, you have to expect the standard yourself, and you probably have something far worse. My father would always call it a candelivered light pole, you know, in your eye. A little sliver in one person's eye that you say, ah, you're really struggling with this, I need to help you here. Your job is your righteousness. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So your task, you might say, for all of the otherness that Christianity calls you to, the one time you get to spend time with you is figuring out how bad you are and confessing it, dealing with it. This is about you, it's about your righteousness, it's about your heart. That just really interrupts a lot of Christians' ministries to the ungodly. We really want to be talking to them about how ungodly they are. Now, I don't think it's wrong for us to declare the truth about God's standards about certain sins. It increases the trespass. But, if we haven't worked out our own righteousness before God, we are not in that business. 
You are not called. And not only, it's not just, again, you're denied righteousness by the law. You're denied pietism of the, of the church. You're denied the ability to um, rail against the sins of others. And not only that, you're almost denied the ability to get into debates with atheists. We were talking about, I was talking to Bradley Leach last night about talking to various atheistic individuals. This is next verse, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, again, just like there is time for you to say a prayer in public, we, we said a prayer before our dinner, public. You hope that it wasn't on the street corner. You have circumstances where you can't avoid giving alms, where somebody noticed you giving alms, and your left hand does know what your right hand is doing. But your mentality about the faith is that this is really individual, and it's really personal, and I really should get it right, and the truths that I live with, the truths that I live with isn't mine, mine to do battle with. If I'm called on account for it or an opportunity to discuss it, yeah, but if I think that I am out there to judge others, if I think I'm out there to inform others, I need to add these two things to it. One, your own righteousness has to be met and have you recognized that they're not interested in what you have to say? You ever thought of talking to people only if they have a question? Or like Christ would do, he would confuse them if they didn't have questions? We're sort of, we're sort of living a different kind of Christianity than Christ has lined out. Um, I, I think of the believing church, and I'm thinking of the believing church as, you know, whatever evangelical brand you, you belong to, uh, but they're evangelical, and they're, they're standing in the world for Christ. But they're spending an awful lot of their time trying to stop homosexuals from being homosexual. Not spending an awful lot of time being righteous, just to be frank. They have a far bigger... Forgiveness factor. Well, I don't really understand what love is all that much. And you're blaming homosexuals for being homosexuals? You've got a log in your own eye. Get rid of it. Now, the homosexuals are still wrong. They're still in sin. They have to answer to God for it. They will be punished. But our operational matter, it'd be much nicer if Christians cared for their sanctity and that their sanctity was not rule-keeping or pietism. Okay? Not rules, but heart, heart, and you might say secret prayer, secret fasting, secret almsgiving. And in here, looking at your own conscience before you're looking at others, looking to your own thoughts, because um, this is a matter, just like in the last chapter, it's a matter of privacy, is the test. Not the arena that it has to be in, but the test for you. The hypocrisy is cured 
by the realization of what privacy brings to you. Pray in secret. You don't have to respond to someone in sin. You don't have to. You don't have to say anything. Sometimes you do, but you've got to be the kind of person who isn't about that. You're about your righteousness. So when you're John the Baptist, and you go before Herod, and you can say, it is not right that you should marry that woman and get your head chopped off, It'll be a, it would be a play well made. People came to John the Baptist to hear his correction. You have certain circumstances where you do. We're talking about the nature of the Christian life. Christ doesn't want anything that isn't absolutely, and I'm not going to use the word authentic. What would be another good word for authentic? Keeping it real? What's that? What do, you, what do young people say these days? Genuine. genuine. That's biblical. Keep your, let your love be genuine. Uh, have you worked that out? Or have we spend all of our time demonstrating our own piety to ourselves with our religious observances and how much we fight the world about, you know, gays? And that's the big one. We could be fighting the world about, you know, the greedy or I don't know what else. Drink, drink. It could have been like prohibition, demon rum. We, 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 we always get on those trains rather than saying, you know, that's the most godly person I ever met. I wonder what they think about my heavy drinking or my living with my boyfriend. Well, then you can tell them. But your primary thought, I have the proverb here, verse, chapter 9, verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. That's What are your rules for functioning in the new covenant? Your new rules are you have assessed you. You've given up the parts of you that are wrong. You've been forgiven. You've grown in grace and you've grown to know how to be, not do. You know that you're not making your measure. You're not becoming famous in the kingdom for how much of a rat bastard you became to non-believers. You became a good person. And a good person who tells the non-believer that they can't do that because it's sin, the non-believer will listen to them because they said, he's actually taken the beam out of his own eye. His family is good. They're not difficult. If you say, this is really for me, the centerpiece of the Christian life I mentioned this to somebody else last week, I think it was, not here at Bible study, but it was, it was you know, that my father outlined this for me, that Christ either died to save the church, and you're the collateral effect of the church, or Christ died to save you, and you, and people like you, have the collateral effect of the church. The church is collateral to your belief, because salvation is about sin, and salvation, he died to save sinners, not the church. The church is just an accident after, you know, or an intentional accident. But it didn't come first. The church was something that um, uh, requires that everybody have the grace. But when we get back into pieties, like in chapter 6, we get back in like misreading the commands, and again, like chapter 5, we build an entirely different religion with the name of Jesus on it. You ever think, you know what, you, you guys know some Mormons, right? 
Some of you have that kind of background in your family, friends. Uh, one basic objection to Mormons is, is that they're talking about Jesus, but they don't mean Jesus. Or you deal with the Catholics. They're talking about Jesus, but they don't mean Jesus. And the same sort of, they don't mean salvation the way we're talking about it. You can't be in the same state. You don't, you don't get, because you're an evangelical, it doesn't mean you get a special dispensation to be wrong. You have to stop thinking of yourself as a correlative to the church and begin to think of yourself as a sinner forgiven by God, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a certain way. You have these decisions to make. You have the closet. The church doesn't show up in your closet with you. You're doing something to keep the privacy of your piety private so, it's, so it has integrity. You're going to do something about how you approach unbelievers because it's your eye that has a beam in it. Sin is individual. Salvation is individual. I'm grateful that you're all saved because if we get together, eat brats and study the Bible. So, when he gets to this point, remember, if you, if you go, stand back when you, after, after the Bible study is over, you take your notes at home and you lay them out on the dining room table. And you look at the scope of the three chapters. Say, is Evan, what, how shall I say this, right? Is this, is this kind of in the broadest sense what our Lord was about in this sermon? What, what's the flow here? Does he, he seem to be registering something that the Jews needed to hear so they didn't just think this was more conservative, intense, pharisaic obedience to God? But it was something else. Now you, if you've taken this on as something that you know the task is to find the heart for all of this, the being for all of this rather than the doing. Verse 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man of you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So the encouragement, there's an encouragement to step into this task. He has set up the promises of the Beatitudes. He set up the ethical frame, the being not doing. He set up your piety to be private to keep you from being a, you know, a religious hypocrite. And he's telling you it's about you and it's about what you pursue. Are you going to ask? Are you going to seek? Are you going to knock? Not just generally. Not just that I'm going to college and I want to have a... Um, um, I'm going to college and I want to have a learning experience, a constantly moving... Um, Mind, you know, put that, put together the, uh, um, put together all the things that I could learn. It's not that kind of asking. Obviously, it's asking along this trajectory, asking along the trajectory of, of, uh, of being of a heart of Jesus Christ. If you seek it, because it depends on what your God is like, right? Have your Father in heaven. How much more will your Father in heaven? 
if you're evil and you would give good gifts to your children, how much more would God? Well, you have to have the right opinion of God. I've known a number of people who you talk to them about God the Father, and since they hated their own father, they had a real tough time with God the Father. Now that's a... Um, <clears throat> that's just an aspect of your faith that you have to step into and say, what do I believe about my God? So that if I sought him on this... Um, my grandson Alex was saying at uh, dinner that now that my father was my father was dead it's on you I said why not Doug <laughs> and said not counting Doug it's on you this is the kind of Christianity where you know what the story is, the myth given you about Jesus Christ is, did you believe it? So that when you know that being and, and integrity in your piety and uh, a certain righteousnesses a certain way are what Christ wants, do you pursue God, ask, seek, knock, with that in mind? It's not general asking, seeking, knocking. It's this asking, seeking, knocking. You get up in the morning and say, Lord, I need to know more how to be Christian, not to do Christian things. Sign up for fewer programs. Know the Lord better. You expect there to be a home for you. When you knock at the door, you know, asking and seeking both are sort of you know, you got that Zen moment of, ah, grasshopper, my seek and you shall find. But knocking it will be open to you. What are you finding inside the door? I mean, what's, there's, there's, I'm trying to get into something. I'm asking about something, seeking something, but knocking on the door, there's something, there's almost a commitment that there is a structure that I'm anticipating. Do you anticipate the peace of God, the being in Christ, the heart of God regarding all these things? When you knock, it's a, that's the question, you might say, of the proto-evangelium. The, the, before the gospel steps in, does a man believe in God? Does he see, believe that God rewards those who seek him? That's where he's at right now in the sermon. There's all these things that we thought we could do over here religiously and do them wrong and hypocritically and all the rest, and it's fine because it's the true religion. And then we'll make up for it with blaming non-believers for being bad. Or really, did I stop and say, this is about me, isn't it, Lord? Yes, it's about you and the light pole in your eye. And my tendency to always want to be right. Wilsons do struggle with that. Because we always are. That was supposed to be funny. Thank you. Um, so when you when you when you know what your target is, when you know what you're trying to, just like when you're confessing sin, you need to know what the sin is that you sin that you need to get t taken care of. You confess the things that needs to be confessed. Don't confess the thing that doesn't. Show God that you know what He's talking about, so that when you pray to Him, you ask Him things that are meaningful to Him and reveal to Him that you understand that God wants you 
to obey his imper imperatives from the heart. And not because it's an imperative. Because as soon as you do it because it's a rule, you miss the point. You, you do it because you're different. You sought the thing. You sought the thing that made you different. You asked for the thing that made you different. Don't think, I'm going to prove to my friends and my God that I am different because I'll practice doing the things. Again, you're just trying to... Just a sophisticated way of not having integrity. You ask, seek, you knock at the door of realness. Quoted Rush Limbaugh used to call himself the mayor of Realville. Well, actually, Jesus is the mayor of Realville, and uh, uh, that's where you should be knocking. You should be asking him, Lord, I need to have this be because I'm good, not because I'm pretending to be good, or I'm pretending, even with sincerity, a desire to be good, so I'm going to pretend. That's what Paul was in Romans 7, always trying to do the right thing, but never really succeeding. And when you see Christ's you know, sermon in these three chapters, you realize how tough it is. But go after it. And the next thing, it sort of concludes. This is almost the, the uh, ethically, the, 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 the new covenant statement. So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. He sums up, and, and Paul echoes him in Romans, late Romans, 14-ish, somewhere there. Loving your neighbor as yourself fulfills all the law and the prophets. You don't have to, you don't have to keep a checklist of, of how good you were and which rules you broke. You just have to love. And the, and the definition of love, and I've told people this before, because you like to get into those discussions where you, uh, oh, really, what is love? Wasn't there a song? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Little, uh, Pop culture reference. I know some scripture too. Okay, good. Um, we like to claim ignorance. Jesus doesn't. Yeah, you might be stupid, but not, but not that stupid. You know exactly what it is, because you love yourself a lot. And all he says is, okay, I've got it. Instead of using the word love, I'll just say the way you would like to be treated. You know, that way. Do to others as you would be done by. Oh, yeah. How much is that? Oh, a bit. Quite a bit. I mean, I've known some people save up for a vacation for themselves. You spend a lot of time thinking about you. And that's all Jesus asked. Just like you never judge somebody for something that you're not willing to be measured by, and then he turns around on the positive side of the ledger and says, okay, let's measure it for the positive you like, where you find out just how much you love you and what you would like to get and how much attention you would like to receive. And that's what you owe your neighbor. That's what you owe your enemy. You love your enemies. That's, this is, I don't, this is one of, I don't want to call the, a sermon of Christ a bitch slap, but that's what just happened to the Jews. Standing there, you know, coming to him on the mountaintop and everybody's, you know, wearing, you know, Middle Eastern clothes and stuff and looking very serious about all this. And, 
and the rabbi is up there, maybe with great cadences and, and uh, pauses for effect. And it's just getting worse. Every verse is getting worse. This is an impossible religion. It's it. It's an impossible religion. But that's what he wants you to do. This is all the law of the prophets. Everything you wanted in Judaism, we could just shove that aside and just go over here and measure it by what you'd like done to you. Okay. So we've realized that. We realize that this ethical path is really steep. You're supposed to ask, you're supposed to seek, you're supposed to knock, because you'll find, and it'll be answered, and they'll open it to you. This is the target goal, loving others. Doesn't, just be frank, it doesn't, it, the rewards aren't as immediate as you would like them to be. The reason you fake piety is you get immediate rewards. The reason you've got the rules worked out, what you can and can't do, is because you think you're achieving righteousness. And uh, this just is different you from the get-go, from the time you bowed the knee to Christ to now. This is the different you that is available to you. Success in this world is not what it promises. You will sometimes be successful. All of us live in an affluent Western society in a nice town with tree-lined streets. Wasn't always and isn't always that way for Christians. But we're not talking about certain rewards. Here's the warning. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. See that door you were knocking on? You might want to step back and look at, look at how narrow it was. But hold it. Is this the right door? Looks like a garage door. Not a gar- you don't want a garage door. For the gate is wide, the garage door, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You will not be entertained, necessarily, by having your faith built up by the numbers of people who share your faith. You should be holding it if you were the only one holding it in the world, because it's true, and you know Jesus Christ. And someday in the history of the world, that may be true for somebody. There were times in history where the gospel was not preached. People, how can they believe unless they hear, and how can they hear unless a preacher is sent? So there were times the gospel wasn't preached. I don't know if there were Christians then. We're told by our Christ that if you recognize the ease, I was looking up numbers the other couple nights ago, how many religious adherents to every religion in the world, Christianity wins. We're, we're ahead by millions closest is Islam. But they're like millions behind us. Tens of millions behind us. But of course you some go, yeah, but we know those are, what did our Koreans used to call them? Korean Christians. 
not real ones. Nominal Christians, cultural Christians, people who have nothing else to say. But the whole idea is the narrow way versus the wide way. It's easy to say what Christianity's ethic is like. It's easy to say what the nature of the belief of the system is supposed to produce in you. Easy to say. I managed to say it four times in four weeks in this Bible study. But the way is narrow and hard. And finding it, even in your own minds, you're stopping to say, but really, don't you think? I had a guy who lived with us, sat under our teaching, which is uh, love driving us to the ethics of God. Years later, we moved away, called me up, and still had not made sense out of the idea that the law was not incumbent on the Christians. The, law, the Ten Commandments were not the path to righteousness. Love is the path to righteousness. The same God, the same intentions, the same desires out of you, but he wants them by love. He doesn't want them by obedience to the law. People have a hard time breaking free of the regular religious tendencies of all religions. They all have rules. They all have pieties. They all have procedures. And Christianity shouldn't become one of those religions. And those that find it are few. Now, if you've been around Christian circles at all, you know that there are some different views about eschatology, and I just want to throw this in there as a, you know, as a gift. But this is the passage why I'm not a post-millennialist. I'm sorry. People aren't that way. Christ saw that people weren't that way, and they're all going in the wide gate. It's good religion. Religion everybody wants. Just a religion that a Republican would want to have. <laughs> but not a religion for a Christian. Because that's a, a hard and narrow seeking, and you have to find it. And when you find it, you're with very few people. And even the people who have found it sometimes don't know that's where they found it. And so they go back and describe it in law terms. They describe it in pietisms. They join a church that, that suggests pietisms in priestcraft and, and, and moralizing. Rather than saying, how, how have our hearts drawn closer to Jesus Christ? How have you been made more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Then he warns us again, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? So every sound tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears evil fruit. A sound tree cannot bear evil fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, bolded for your convenience, thus you will know them by their fruits. So what is he telling you here? That not only does this have to realign your mind and find the narrow and hard place that is following Christ, where you had to learn to be and have integrity, and be about your own righteousness. 
and realizing that you might not be part of the greatest movement in the history of the world because Christ didn't come to start a movement. He died to save sinners. Movements are for people who like excitements. Drama queens. If you want to be a religious drama queen, join the movement. But you found Christ. We have to realize that God is measuring this not by success, or what is the success he's measuring, we should say that. Um, once we realize that there's two separate kinds of religion in Christianity, I call one Christendom, the other Christianity, there are arbiters, not arbiters, um, advocates of each. There are advocates of the kind of Christianity Christ is going, no, don't do that. They are false prophets. They are using you for the gains that, maybe not always financial, not just ravenous wolves to eat you or something like that, but there's all sorts of rewards in this life that men who seek power will say what they think needs to be said in religious constructs. We've all been disillusioned, haven't we? Did Ravi Zacharias disillusion anyone here? Should have. The man was a cad. But there's a great, there's, you know, it's a great job. It's a great gig. You know, you get to sit in your backyard, sweaty, and there'll be 25 people, and you get to talk to them for an hour, and they'll nod. Some, people, some of you are nodders, because that means that when my, my eye crosses your face, you nod. That shows that, yes, I'm listening, Vicar. That's satisfying. People like the rewards of this, and Jesus doesn't want you to measure the success of, you know, I don't believe just because a church is a mega church that it's a bad church. I believe that you have to watch it very closely, more when it's a mega church than when it's not, because people start to collect from the world on basic religious terms that even the world believes in, not the terms of Christianity. Christ wants you to measure their fruit. So, new teacher comes to town, who he is, what he's like. Did you watch him speak to his wife in the restaurant? That's why it requires that pastors have children that are believers. We want to be sure they've got the fruit, that at home, their kids grew up with Jesus Christ lived. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So it's not success. It's also not theological. This next group, he says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Once again, your fruit, what you're like, by the measurement of God's path to righteousness. Not a person who is big on teaching the law. I've known pastors who were big on teaching the law, had great ministries denouncing, say, homosexuality, until their kid or they got caught in homosexuality. Because they were just doing it rather than being it. And suddenly they had a more clarity of mind and 
opened up to new thoughts about what was legitimate for the Christian life. It's he who does the will of my Father. So I either have to do it by keeping the law in every point, which you can't do, or being the righteousness of God in Christ by the love of Christ. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Now, you've heard this passage before. I don't know if you created the categories. So theology, they picked the right Lord. They're saying, Lord, Lord. They're saying, Jesus, Jesus. They could say the creed. They could say the confession. Whatever it is. They could be on your team, what you think is true. He says, no, I'm looking to see how you lived. He said, but, but you don't seem to understand, Lord. I, I have miraculous power. Now, I've been hoping to be able to levitate for years. And I expect you to all come to my church if I do. But it doesn't mean anything. Because here these guys are saying, didn't we do this? We prophesied? We Exorcisms? I've never done an exorcism. I've never prophesied, let alone mighty works. These guys had. They had the theology. They had the right Lord. They had magic. But they were basing it all on the kind of religion that Jesus just spent three chapters kicking down a flight of stairs. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. This is the crisis that unless I'm willing to turn aside from religion and turn aside into the grace of God, the being in Christ, and realize that I'm searching for a narrow door, a hard door to knock on, that will allow me to be what the Christian ought to be. I could be standing before the throne of God at some point, all my theology in order, all my cards punched, enough Bible reading, enough mission projects to Bangladesh or wherever you guys go on mission projects uh, and him still saying I don't know who you are for heaven's sake because it's righteousness it's, it's the righteousness of Christ if we don't find it and we don't find it his way it is not good enough to be religious now he wraps it up in the last paragraph. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now, that means he wants you to quickly go back over the last three chapters. Hear these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, the floods came. And the winds blew and beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. I'm sure there is a veggie tale about this. Because I know I grew up with flannel graph about this. I grew up with countless Bible stories of the house that... I think we even had a song. Was there a song? Yes. I don't, let's not sing it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they missed the, the point. Oh, yeah, the hand motions. You build your house on the... Christianity's an awful place, okay? Christendom's an awful place. Remember what he's telling you. 
the illustration applies to everybody's view. I could tell you that if you held my views on architecture, Laura Bath, it is like building your house, no pun intended, on a rock. Because it's a good metaphor for anybody listening to you that you're the rock foundation and they're the sandy one. But Christ is telling you primarily, have you heard these words of mine and do them? Okay? Hear the words of mine and do them. Not look at his strong view about adultery or strong view about hatred and try to do the non-hatred stuff. You're trying to say, his words are pointing me to become the thing that does it, that is it. That's me doing it. If I'm looking at Christianity, a narrow door that's not just like every other religion on the planet, every other religion that has to please the priests or has to go through the rituals or has to prove to the God they're, 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 they're about something. Not that you are changed by the power of God. That's what doing these words of Christ. He has a path of intensification on the law. Take the path. He has a path regarding your pieties that you need to take. You need to resolve that. You need to not step into what all the rest of Christendom will offer you to act like a pious Christian. Be pious. But be pious from the heart. And everyone, verse 26, who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Okay, Mac, basic distinction. These words of mine heard, doing them. These words of mine heard, not doing them. Okay? We all, we think we know about tonight, in the last four weeks, is we've all been here hearing the words of Christ. Now, this, the dividing up of the company. Are we doing them? Are we going to do them? Are we going to be devoting our Christian life to not be someone who just, oh yeah, I really like the Sermon on the Mount. I really like the Lord's Prayer. Well, I'm glad you have a refrigerator that you can put things on, and that makes you feel close to Jesus. We were talking last night. I don't know if anybody does this. I hope I don't hurt anybody's feelings. Ah, I don't mind. Uh, the way you sign off a letter, you know, a Christian way. You know, used to say, sincerely, Evan. I will put blessings, Evan. Other people do things like, in his grip. And I want to jump through the mail and punch him in the throat. Now, some people really meant it. I, I, in his grip is a fine image. Um, it was the one that we just got, got from, uh, oh yeah, it was from Connor, Connor DeVries. Some guy speaking online about how people when he would end his letters, he'd say, best, and put his name. And they thought it was kind of passive-aggressive that he would say that. So empty. And, and he said, so I removed the middleman, and I said, I'll see you in hell. And then his name. <laughs> Directly aggressive, rather than passive-aggressive. Did that have anything to do with the Bible study? No. What did it have anything to do with it? You know, somebody's going to be listening to this on the, their computer somewhere in the United States, and uh, 
This is going to confuse them. And does not do them, verse 26, will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I was like that phrase. It always reminds me of Poe's story, The Fall of the House of Usher, which if you haven't read it, do read it. It's creepy. But when you think of a great house dropping, I remember, remember when the house next to my dad's house fell into the hole? Great was the fall of it. Everybody scrambled out. I remember Nancy telling me, we were looking at the props, said, that's not enough posts. And lo and behold, it was not. Reality catches up with it. Gravity catches up with what you're doing. And believe me, the broad is the way, and many are they that go therein, that leads to what? Destruction. Because in God's world, he, ha he upholds everything by his word of power. In his, this world, he, he is favoring those who understand and do what he asked. And those who didn't, you ever, you know, we have grandsons and granddaughters and such who occasionally will walk off the edge of a step or the couch or, and suddenly the nature of God's world at 32 feet per second squared comes home to them. And that's what happens. You do this other thing, this religion thing, this keep the rules thing, just be enough righteousness to make everybody happy with you. It catches up with you and suddenly everybody goes, well, they're, the, they're leading people in the church. They shouldn't be walking out on their wife. They shouldn't be doing X, Y, or Z. And when Jesus finished these sayings, Ladybug. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd, crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That's a, that's a, that drives a nail in. And it made me think, that's why I underlined, great was the fall of it. Christ's teaching of the true way was so beyond what the scribes of their religion. Remember, Judaism was the true religion. It really was. The presence of God dwelt in their temple in Jerusalem. These were the, the, the philosophers, the theologians of, of that religion, and Christ is saying things with authority. It made me think of a verse, which I really like in Revelation. Um, Somewhere. Revelation, the last one. Last book. It's right at the point in the, in the vision. Chapter. Chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. He's thrown Satan down from heaven. Satan down from heaven. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
Now, this moment in the Revelation image, generally speaking, is the same time in history as the Sermon on the Mount. Not the particular month and day. This is Christ's incarnation. Christ has just come to the earth in the Revelation, and it says, now the kingdom of our God and Christ and the authority of his Christ have come. And that's how people hear it. Once you hear, once you know what it takes and what kind of door this is and how narrow it is and the kind of people you are with when you find it, how few they may be, but when you find that Christ with them, you will find a Christian life with authority. The greatness in your life will not be the calamity of the fall of your estate. It'll be the greatness of your God. Because your God will have this kind of authority. And this is what he has brought to you. If you don't go this way, you're just going to go play religion for a few decades. Your kids will leave the faith. And something bad will happen. And if something bad doesn't, you'll die. And then Jesus will have a talk with you. And hopefully, <coughs> he won't say, I never knew you. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Your Son is our God. He is our Lord, and it's His authority that has come. We'd ask that we would hear His words and do them. In your Son's name, amen. amen. Well, no assignments for next week. There is no next week. Um, if, if anybody wanted to do me a favor, there is a chair rack right down the basement stairs in the basement that most of the white chairs can go on. And it's going to be like 100 degrees tomorrow. I don't want to move them. So you can grab one and... Yeah, and about... about Yes, the the uh, the white dressed man. You're welcome.